Welcome to the Back Pain Podcast with Rob and Dave, the only show geared specifically to help educate you about your back pain. We talk to the experts to bust the myths, break down the science, and give you all the top tips for living pain-free. So, if you're driving to work, tidy in the house, or even laid up at home in pain, we have something for everyone. Hello, podcast friends, and welcome to episode 25 of the Back Pain Podcast. Today's episode features Mike James, aka The Endurance Physio. Mike is a very experienced physiotherapist and athlete himself and spends his time working with athletes from all walks of life, from amateurs to professionals. In this episode, expect to learn why stretching won't help you get any faster, but squats will, the biggest reasons that athletes get injured and what you can do about it, how to know if your training program is right for you, and what are the best shoes you can be running in. As always, if you like what you hear, please give this episode a share with a friend or a colleague or leave us a review. It means the absolute world to us. Take care and enjoy the episode. And we're live. Welcome back to the Back Pain Podcast. I'm delighted to to let you know that we are joined today by Mike James, also known as the Endurance Physio. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the invite. No worries, Mike. Good to have you on. So we're here today going to talk all about endurance sports, endurance injuries, everything which, you know, is right into your ballpark. So should we take away right from the top and just kind of talk about endurance events? Can everybody train for an endurance event? And so maybe you want to clarify kind of what you understand to an endurance event to be. And, you know, as you said, can everyone do it? Is it are some people better at doing it than others? Are more people prone to injury? Take us away. Yeah, I think in short, the answer is yes. It sounds very simple, but yes. And I think something you said that's super important is to just define what that endurance event is. Because I think the traditional, what most people would anticipate, they'll jump straight to things like marathons. They'll jump straight to things like Ironman triathlons. And, and they're, of course, endurance events that a lot of people aspire to. But in my opinion, endurance starts way down because endurance, as most things that we always chat about with patients, is individual to the person in front. So if you are just starting to get into running and you want to do a park run, that's an endurance event. I think if you're a footballer, if you're a rugby player, if you play any sort of team sports, then most of those are predominantly endurance-based events. Mm. I even I even remember having a big discussion with someone a long time ago um, where I was arguing with him that CrossFit was an endurance sport, which he didn't really like. I said, look, the, the nature of what you do, uh, discipline may not be endurance-based, but more often than not, you have multiple rounds over the same day, over the same weekend, and you have to endure to be able to prolong and sustain performance. So um, I think... Yes is the answer. If we stick to where I operate in, which would be mainly that running, cycling, swimming, triathlon, the, the low, well, predominantly used to be low, um, low sort of speed, you know, low, low effort, low speed, prolonged um, aerobic type activity. However, um, in the 20, 25 years I've been doing it, then certainly that, that has changed. Uh, it, it is not a aerobic-based sport for many people these days, particularly as you go up, up the levels. I think um, generally you can have luck on your side or not on your side. You can be what I call a robust or a bulletproof athlete, or you could be one of the fragile athletes. And and often the fragile athletes are those people who do all the right things, but they're just unfortunate. They tend to pick up niggles, injuries, aches and pains, and and we have to manage them a little bit close more closely than others just in the same way that we can all, all probably identify or think of professional sportsmen in whatever sports you follow which tend to just pick up the injuries more often than others those bulletproof ones can often just be um lucky but i often try to put a bit of context on it that i think being a bulletproof athlete or one of those robust athletes isn't always a superpower they tend to make lots of easy mistakes and their performance suffers because they just can get away with stuff, so they may not apply themselves as well as they could. And likewise, for many of the fragile athletes, and it's not necessarily a weakness. It's often something that does mean they're a little bit more on point with their preparation. It does mean that often they are more consistent with their training and more progressive with it. Um, I think as a general theme, the reason most people tend to pick up injury is because Unfortunately, the likes of Team GB Cycling, Team Sky, all of those elite stuff, they've 
really made things like marginal gains really sexy. That last 5%, the disc wheels, the, the, the helmets, the fancy bikes, the fancy shoes, obviously seeing things like the vapor flies come into the fore now. And people go after those things and spend money and time and energy and effort on those things before they've nailed the 95% that comes first. So often, a lot of these injuries, whatever type of athlete you are, are down to simple errors in your training, lack of consistency, trying to almost accelerate through your apprenticeship sometimes. Mm. Anyone can do any event, but some people just need to prepare themselves for a bit longer and build up to things. Those are probably the big things of why people tend to get injured. So, so the the unlucky, um, uh, sort of unlucky as, as you described, or, or the more fragile or more likely to injure athletes, is that just a case of genetics, Mike? Is it, is it just how they're how they're made that's creating that, and vice versa? Yeah, yeah, and I think sometimes um, genetics, physiologically, hmm. but also sometimes genetics psychologically. Ah, okay, yes. I mean, you, you can work with some of those alphas out there who are just they ignore everything that is said to them, <laughs> ignore every bit of common sense advice. I remember. Um, well, this is this is 15 years ago plus, but um, I was working with a, a Team GB rower and he'd had uh, anterior reconstruction. The surgeon at the time had been re- was really well-versed in working with that sort of population and, and in, in fairness, was really aggressive with the rehab plan that he was letting us go forward with. And um, six days in, re-ruptured. And we couldn't work out why. It was like, what are you know... We have pushed you, but what's going on here? Mm. About four or five days later, he fessed up that he'd got the single skull out and had been on the river. Six days post-op, just, you know, nothing, no matter how aggressive the plan you made for him, was good enough. It it had to just, and he was just going to self-sabotage himself in whatever stage was done. So there's always those, those athletes that do just, even when they know the right advice, it's just, no, can't help myself. But again, yeah, the pre- predominantly it's those people that are physically just a little bit unlucky. Mm. Um, and again, a lot of them do, they do all the right stuff. They do all the right things that we uh, will probably speak about later, but they just are unlucky and, yeah. and tend to pick up injuries. And, and often they're not the same injuries. They tend to bounce between different muscles, different joints, different body parts. And, you know, they're, they're the ones who will have a couple of seasons of interrupted performance because of, let's say, tendon ligament problems. They'll get over those the first real season. They're the one who crashes their bike, fractures a clavicle, something stupid like that. So, um, you know, I think the really unlucky ones are few and far between. You tend not to see them so much now. But, um, but yeah, some people just, you know, bad, bad luck. Yeah. Garrett Thomas fell off his bike just in the news today, withdrew from the Giro, you know, fractured hip. He still managed to complete the stage yesterday, which is still pretty phenomenal. Wow. Shows his mental fortitude can just carry on with a, you know, I don't know what type of fracture in the hip it was, but it was a still a fracture to his hip and he can still carry on for another 100, 100 plus K, I think, wasn't it? He's, he cycled. Yeah. yeah. Again, and at that level, it's that psychology that, it, it, it's, let's just say it was a hairline fracture. I wonder if he hadn't lost the time he'd lost, whether he'd still, whether that risk reward I'm still in the top three. I know I've got a long way to go in this race. Um, can you patch me up and get me to it? It's my only event for the season. It's my A race. Never won the Giro. Mate, you know, you never know. But he lost something like 12 minutes. Yeah. So effectively, race is dead. Race is gone. Um, Crazy, man. So, so yeah. And, and I think at that level, that's the calls they make. But, um, yeah, he's been unlucky this season. Hmm. Well, it's good to know that there's a mirror then from day-to-day patients. Uh, well, so I suppose day-to-day people who are, who are listening to this, even if they're not high-level athletes, even if they're not endurance uh, athletes, um, and looking to get into it, they might think, "Well, I'm, you know, I'm unlucky. I, I've got back pain," or they might not be able to do the same as someone else they know who doesn't get an injury or pain from it. It's not to say that these athletes are completely different. Uh, uh, species you know they are also injury prone and they do also uh, pick up things here and there but it's possibly the um, the reaction to that the the work around it as well Um, so it's not they're not different species out there walking around um, injury free Uh, it's just their reaction to it perhaps yeah yeah definitely and and for those people listening you know it does work both ways there's 
there's people that certainly it's changed slightly now, more younger people getting in, but there was a, a time that the average new athlete was the 30, late 30-something ex-team sportsman looking for something else afterwards. The footballer, the rugby player, the netball player, the hockey player. Mm. And actually, you were finding some of these people were fragile in those sports, the contact sports and the sort of change of direction cutting sports. But suddenly in a straight line in that sort of sagittal sport without the contact, absolutely bulletproof. Mm. Amazing. So, you know, it does it does depend. And then again, within the endurance world, you'll see people you know, we categorically know that running tends to be the one that puts most force and stress on the body. But you'll see someone then switch from a run to more of a triathlon base, so they'll switch to something else and all of a sudden. And I think that's one of the things that I really like about endurance sports is you have far more options sometimes. There's so many more things you can do. You know, I've personally speaking as an athlete and I've been really lucky with injuries over the years and I don't really put myself as bulletproof. I think mine has been absolute luck in the fact that I've got a bit of OCD. I'm really obsessive about stuff. So what I tend to do is I go mental on something. So like I, I did 17 Ironman in four years. Wow. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I need a change now. So I've not dragged out two Ironman a year for 10 years. I've gone really great. Now, all right, let's switch to this open water swimming for a bit. Mm. And then, oh, I'm bored of that. Now let's do something else. So, so endurance sports has given me the opportunity to change the sport within the sport. Yeah. And it would come across as, oh, this guy must be practicing what he's preaching and he's bulletproof when in plenty of times I've made mistakes in my programs. I've just got lucky with it. Yeah, that's amazing. So that's a really good kind of summary then, of, which sets us up really nicely for the rest of the show with yeah, some people are bulletproof, some people aren't. There's lots of mistakes that people make. And we'll come on to a little bit more specifics, I think, that people make into into training and, and bits later. But if we touch on kind of injuries um, from the endurance athlete side, uh, obviously there's the back pain podcast and we can talk a bit about back pain, but we're, you know, we, we divulge into anything here. So, you know, from your perspective as someone who works with a lot of endurance athletes, you know, from your perspective and also kind of from the data, what, you know, are the most common things that you see in, in these, you know, endurance athletes? Yeah, this was this is quite an easy question to answer actually because um, when I teach about working with endurance athletes to therapists, then this is some of the stuff that I put onto one slide in particular because that's what I've gone and looked and and my personal practice absolutely reflects what the research suggests. So um, I tend to keep it really simple with this. So there are some stuff we'll break down, but whether you're someone looking to get into endurance sports and then thinking, what do I need to look out for? or whether, again, you're a therapist what, listening who wants to work with them, then absolutely, if you think of it, that probably 75 to 80% of injuries will be lower limb, there'll be soft tissue, there'll be non-traumatic, and there'll be overuse, overload type injuries. Can you just clarify soft tissue? Uh, when, you, when you say soft oh, yeah, tissue, you, you so mean muscle and... Muscles, yeah. ligaments, tendons, everything that's non-bone or joint-related, basically. Yeah. Now, that other 25%, just the exact opposite. This will be your traumatic. It'll often be a bony fracture. You break a bone. It'll be potentially upper limb, but obviously could be lower limb. Um, so this will be your bike crashes. This will be people who have, you know, injuries running where they might slip, trip, fall and, and things like that. So um, it's probably 75-25 split-ish. And then zooming into that larger proportion. So the muscles, soft tissue, ligaments, type stuff then starting at the bottom working up it's all the stuff you'd expect we tend to see plantar fascia that sort of soft tissue in the foot that helps with the running mechanism the achilles lots of calf and quad and hamstring strains and then some of those tendons like the knee and the, the bum and and some of those other tendons that live in around the hip. Brilliant. And then, so of, of all of that, you know, I think the most common thing that we, you know, I will see, Dave will see, you will see, you know, I see an awful lot of is, especially of a lockdown, is a lot of Achilles problems. And, you know, whether you call them Achilles tendinopathies, Achilles tendinitis, and it's that, you know, solid bit of, you know, tendon right behind the back of the leg. Um, you know, why don't we focus on a little bit on a couple of injuries um, and we'll look at Achilles tendon problems um, and then go for, you know, why do they occur? Is that, is that, you know, people's anatomy? Is it overuse? Is it underuse? Is it weakness? Is it tightness? You know, what are the kind of the key things that you see there? Yeah, so um, it's all, most of it is about capacity of the tissues and how much you ask them to do at a given time. Um, 
Now, there's a famous Australian sports scientist guy called Tim Gabbett. And he's got a lovely phrase, which I always think is really relevant to the Achilles and endurance athletes. And that is that it's not the load that breaks you down. It's the load you're unprepared for. So we often just say that, you know, oh, the forces generated in running are ridiculous. And yeah, we know that, you know, the calf muscles and the Achilles tendon themselves can, can absorb and transmit up to eight, nine times body weight sometimes. But if you prepare yourself for that, then you can absolutely tolerate that stuff. But most of the time it is again, and I'll sound like a stuck record by the end, it's just simple errors in the preparation for stuff. Um, a classic one, which is now this vein of my life for the early part of every year is this red January, run every day January. So this new phenomenon where in the new year as part of your fitness thing, you decide to run every single day. I've never heard of that. Yeah, so so it's become really big in running circles. Now, is it absolutely wrong? No. My advice to most people is if you want to run every day in January, then October, November, December, you need to be doing something to prepare for <laughs> it. You don't just sit around doing nothing. Then you go over Christmas, which is probably the most inactive month for most people, where they overeat, overindulge, put a bit of body weight on, and they try to run every day. And what they also try to do every day is, I'm not going to run a mile every day. I'm going to do more each day. And each week, I'll get more and more. And then you suddenly, if you had a seesaw, you'd go, well, this is what your body was able to do. This is what you asked it to do. There's a huge gulf between those two markers. And it's just that little bit of common sense of approaching to Achilles and just going, okay, now that's beginners or someone starting a, a training spike, as we'll call it, any sort of uh, big shock to the system. But it can happen with experienced athletes in the middle of a program. They can just get that program in slightly wrong. We know endurance athletes or anyone new to endurance sport. And I, I, I don't apologize when I say endurance athletes because I, Anyone who does any sort of endurance sports, I genuinely class as an athlete. Um, I think a lot of people think I'm just talking about the elites and the pros. I don't. I think if you're someone who has a job, family, and other social and sort of work commitments, and you are finding X amount of hours a week to cram in training, then I absolutely class you as an athlete. So, um, so I, I am referring to every listener when I say that. Um, but they just do too much too soon or they hate rest. Most of us hate to take rest and recovery periods. So then they, you know, if I'm not training, I'm losing it and I need to train more. And a lot of these problems are exacerbated by the marketing and the media and the mainstream publications that are pushed out. You know, mm -hmm. um, there's probably half a dozen, I can think of us who've been on a quest for about 10 years to try and just break down the myths, the likes of runner's world and today's runner and, 20 triathlon magazine that are just peddling to shift products basically um so those tend to be the the main reasons and then that good old-fashioned myths of things like no pain no gain rest is rust all these outdated beliefs that most of us spend our time in whatever facet of, of work trying to educate people that look some of this stuff we used to believe isn't quite the right stuff anymore why don't we try and reframe it but that still happens in that side of the of the world as well. Definitely. And though, so, you know, the Achilles being being a tendon, we've gone into that and that overuse or that overload. We've talked about load and on various other topics. Do, is that the same with a lot of the other tendon problems that then, you know, you'll see a lot in runners when it comes to the knee, when it comes to the hamstring, when it comes to the kind of the ones around the hip? Is it a very similar principle that kind of too much too soon or it's not quite prepared, not quite ready? Yeah. Too much too soon or too much at any given time for what they're asking themselves to do. Um, often they can be innocent, um, easily avoidable stuff that they just don't think. So, for example, they may change their bike if they're a cyclist or triathlete, and therefore all of a sudden just changing that position, changing some of the components of the bike will just, their training mileage, their training volume may not actually change a lot. And on the surface of it, you go, oh, I can't really see a reason why that would jump out. And then suddenly, oh, well, I changed my saddle height or I did this or I've, I'm doing the same mileage, but I'm doing lots more hills or lots more speed work. Um, 
those those are often the little factors, but almost always it's the same same reasons. Right, and that that yeah, so that change in load doesn't necessarily mean you've gone from three hours to ten hours. It it can be, as you said, more sprint work, more hills, more yeah. So that's something which people don't don't really consider it. As well, sorry, it's a deload. Sometimes people pick up injuries because they're just not doing as much as they normally do. So it's not a case really? of more. Sometimes you know they've they're on a um, and you'll see silly little things like um, someone who's a fifteen to twenty hour a week athlete. And he's now in his off season, so to speak. And because uh, he just wants to do something different, he starts playing squash. He starts playing badminton. Now he's generating these huge forces through tendons that aren't used to absorbing those forces. But to him, it's all hours and miles. So, well, this is nothing compared to that. Hmm. So why is this? So, so it's silly little things sometimes. Yeah. yeah. So once someone has made that mistake and they, you know, they, they've, they've decided that, yes, they, they've, they've loaded up too much and they've done too much too soon, they come and see someone like you or someone like me or, or another medical professional. What should they be doing? You know, should they just be stopping completely and letting things recover? Should they back down? Should they make it stronger and try and do more? You know, what's your general advice? Yeah, so, so generally it depends on the person on what yeah. stage they're at with what problem they've got. Um, there are, of course, times where you do tell people to stop um, whilst there's a period of recovery and rehab and everything else put in place. Generally, I'm a big fan of modifying someone's activity rather than stopping it. Um, you know, that's certainly advice I would give to, to anyone in, in any facet of, of healthcare from a, a patient point of view. You know, um, fortunately, with endurance sports, it's quite easy to modify someone. Mm. And again, from a healthcare provider, often we overlook that. There's so many therapists that are really scared of endurance athletes and pain. So when someone comes into the clinic, and if you're an if you're an endurance athlete listening, make sure those specifics you give to that healthcare provider. If you only get your knee pain after running six miles, then there's no need for me to stop you running. I can absolutely bring you if, if you tell me you can run every day of the week three miles with no problems, and that's a nice safe zone for us, then brilliant. Let's work with that. Because I last thing I want to do is make you stressed and frustrated. And now you don't really want to do the rehab I need you to do. As, as then from there, then the treatment side of it would depend on, on that person again. Nearly always it involves some sort of building that load, building that capacity. That quote I mentioned about um, it's about the load you're not prepared for. Well, let's, let's prepare you for that load. Um, a simple analogy that I use, and obviously this isn't um, advocating that people are machines or cars. But um, in, in a simple way of, of using analogy with, with a mechanical device, if you had a, a car and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you decided that you were either going to drive it really far or really fast or both, most of us would think about checking the car over, maybe putting better suspension on it, tuning the engine up, putting better wheels and brakes on it, because it would be natural that the car in its current form isn't prepared for what I wanted to do. So very much, you know, if I've got a, a musculoskeletal system, I've got muscles, tendons, bones, joints that aren't able to, to prepare themselves for it. And again, if we stay on that theme of the Achilles, mm. it's really simple. Someone tells me they're running five miles twice a week, so 10 miles a week. Well, the average male is probably doing about 1,000 steps a mile. So we're talking 10,000 steps a week. At somewhere between two to six times body weight at most sp average speeds. Now I ask you to do a, a single leg calf raise and you can't do double digits, then I've straight away seen look, you're just not ready. You might be able to do it, but you're not ready to do it as well as you could. So let's, let's build up that strength, let's build that capacity up. And if I can keep you running, or again, if you ever want to overrate your ability as a therapist, work with triathletes. <laughs> if a swimmer comes in with a shoulder problem or a triathlete comes in and it's a, a swim-based shoulder problem, oh, I'll just get you on the bike and the run as much as you can while I, I sort the shoulder out or you can help yourself sort the shoulder out. Mm. Likewise, if the running's a problem, I'll find something else you're able to do. It gets a bit tougher when someone comes in, you know, all I want to do is run. I don't do anything else and you're trying to modify those. So, um, yeah, mo modify. Yes, there is times sometimes we need to calm stuff down. Um, I'm fortunate right now, I guess, that the, the majority of my clinical work is second or third opinions. So I tend not to personally right now do much hands-on or much modality-based treatment to someone in what 
what the way most listeners would think of as treatment, but I absolutely think it's it's appropriate with certain people at certain times. Um, but the fundamental thing that that needs to be put in place is is the rehab and the self management of that rehab. No, 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 exactly. So is you know obviously this is the back pain podcast. We've got to talk a little bit about back pain on it. Uh, you know, as much as we want to go into all the other all the other fascinating inju- injuries. You know, that when we look at kind of the classic mechanical lower back pain or axial lower back pain that we've spoken about before, a non-specific lower back pain, it's got lots of these terms. Does that also, you know, in, in your practice in these endurance athletes follow a similar pattern uh, to kind of the lower limb soft tissue and tendon type problems? You know, is it is it overload? Is it position or are there more kind of caveats to to injuries and problems with that in with athletes? No, there are there are outliers. There are exceptions. And then the people that come in and, and what they come in with, but generally it's the same. A lot of it is mechanical, definitely. Mm. See people with with silly little things to do. You know, again, um, so much of whatever injury in endurance sports, particularly back back stuff, can just be identified from that subjective, that questioning, that chat that we have with those patients. They'll just things will jump off the page about lifestyle or training or activity things. And then it's just putting that into context to them, changing it a little bit and putting them back into it. Certainly there are things like swimming positions, cycling positions, or particularly times in those positions that can absolutely influence back pain. Um, but, but, you know, you'll see, you will see the everyday athlete picking up new back pains, let's call them. They, they don't have a history of back pain, but they'll, they'll have problems at certain times. But likewise, you'll have people with long-term non-specific back pain who find massive relief from switching to endurance sports. Really? Yeah. You know, if you've got someone who's more sedentary and we're trying to improve their sort of lifestyle, general lifestyle and their movement and their, and their sort of management of their condition, then they'll find that transitioning into some of those lower impact work or then gradually just switching between stuff. You know, we know that Movement is medicine and the, the variety of that movement is the spice of life. Well, let's get you swimming, cycling and running then. That's going to be pretty good for your back to have a wide array of activity and movements, some impact, some lower impact, some twisting, some controlled rotation type stuff. Mm. Um, and normally what you find, is, as I'm sure you guys find the same, you make someone more active. They tend to then take more active management of the other facets of their life. Maybe we lose a bit of weight. Maybe we start eating better. Maybe we're sleeping better. Maybe we're just a bit more sort of vigilant in, in every other thing we're doing. Oh, no, no, so true. And it's something I, I give, you know, particularly swimming. I find a lot with people who, who have low back pain. Um, you know, it's fairly cheap as with running to get into. Obviously, cycling cycling's a bit more difficult to get into if you don't have a bike. Um, not everyone does to get into. Um, but, you know, lots of people do. But, yeah, swimming and, and, and is something I recommend a lot. You know, I'm not sure about you. Maybe I could ask you about this is, you know, people that, that aren't running kind of getting into running. You know, I recommend the couch to 5K a lot. That's a really good kind of program. Is that something which you would advocate for someone that's never done anything before? Absolutely. Brilliant way. Brilliant way. And that's one of many ways. You know, I've designed my own sort of walk, walk, run protocol, which which just gets people to run in 30 minutes, three times a week. But it's not a million miles removed from from couch to 5K. I've had uh, elite. I've got an elite athlete right now. Um, she's a female uh, sub thirty ten k runner, and um, wow. she's on the couch to five k with me. She's coming back from a Achilles problem. That's been a. She's come to see me four years down the line. Mm. She's had she. You know that that sorrow tale and uh, pitiful story of every passive treatment you can think of from shockwave to injections to pain and everything and just nobody has ever given that achilles a real proper loading program and she blessed has continued to you know it's been on the bus off the bus on the bus off the bus with periods of running so um so we modified her we stripped her she was one of the few that yeah let's stop running for a while then running seems to be the catalyst to the most of this aggravation Let's load you up, build up some capacity, um, and when we're ready, we'll get you back. And she's at that point now, and she is doing a couch to 5K with me. Amazing. Fantastic. And with some of them, like Herb was an easy sell. She got it. She understood why that was the program for her right now. Others, it's like, oh, that's that's not for me, surely. But yeah, it is. Because although someone else is doing it for a different reason, 
it's the right program for you right now. So Couch to 5K is a brilliant program. I know, brilliant. So with a lot of these athletes then, you know, that's some really good reassurance that you've given that person that, you know, they can come back and come, come back and that they will regain to their kind of original level. You know, what advice do you often give to, to athletes, whether they're endurance or, or whatever, that they can self-manage their, their condition and, and look after it themselves? Yeah, well, I think by nature of the fact that I don't think I, I, I probably, and this is genuine, genuine answer, at least 60% of my patients I see once, mm. at least. And then probably of the other 40, most of those are a, a one follow-up phone call six weeks later. Every single patient that I can see can absolutely self-manage. Unless it's someone with that traumatic fracture, someone who's rehabbing from something more sinister, more serious, and needs a little bit more supervision and, and sort of hand-holding for a while. With, with most of the people I see, it's, look, all you haven't had is the steer in the right direction to get you back to where you need to. So here is, let's have a good chat. I spend an hour, hour, hour and a half with most of my patients. Um, and then that was always followed up with a little video. I'll film them. I'll record them a little video clip of whatever rehab and I'll explain the sort of parameters of what we're trying to do. And then they're left with my email and my phone number. And it's like, if you need me, I'd rather you phone me than not. And, it, and the wheels fall off. But unless we've arranged to do one in, in six weeks or whatever, let's, let's play it by ear. And, and most of them, they just drop me a message going, it's all going well. Or, you know, I found these, you know, and, and most of that often is because the advice I give is more sort of 10,000 foot advice. You know, you, you would benefit from doing some strength work for hips. For, I'll just say, you know, for the hip musculature would be good. Here's an example of two or three that I think work well. But if you jump on YouTube and you Google hip strengthening for runners, 90% of the stuff that comes up will probably be appropriate. Find the ones you like, do them a couple of times a week, make them a little bit more progressive. 99% of athletes will be absolutely fine doing that. Hmm. So Mike, that's our, one of the biggest factors there is in that, that, that overload. Um, so obviously very easy in, or relatively easy in endurance athletes because of the amount of miles and the, the just the, the sheer volume of training. Um, is there, are there any other mistakes that you commonly see with, with endurance type athletes? Um, any sort of uh, top mistakes that you see, whether it's things like uh, bike fit, um, uh, positional stuff? Um, uh, yeah, any, anything which comes up a lot? Uh, it's, it's so so it's, it's all of the above. Um, changing, too much, changing too quick is generally one of the big catalysts to lead to that overload. Mm. So if you're thinking of things like, like bikes, for example, you know, we... Bike fits is a good one to zoom in on. I, I did a, a webinar a couple of weeks ago, which was entitled, should you fit the bike to the body or the body to the bike? Mm. And it was just really trying to break down those myths of that there's a perfect bike position for you. So these these guys now, and, and this is a classic one, um, I just get into triathlon or cycling, I go and buy a bike, and straight away I'm thinking the more I spend on this bike, the better the bike will be, and therefore the less problems I'll have. That's the rules. Yeah. Generally. The bike is bought off price, so it'll either be the most expensive they can find, or the cheapest one that was the most expensive one, and they'll choose it off colour or something stupid like that. Oh, does that not work? It go faster. Well, <laughs> oh, choose it does, partly. But um, so, so you know, bike fitting is a really good example. That's not a panacea. I heard one bike fitter online the other day use a really nice term that he doesn't call them bike fits; he calls them position checks. And just says, look, you know, this may be a better position for you. But I often say to people, you know, the, the first thing you should do when you go for a bike fit, then you've been told that here's the bike position for you. Just note down those dimensions and then tweak it to what's comfy for you now. Because I'm, you know, I very rarely meet someone who leaves a, a bike fitting going, oh, this feels so much better. Normally, it's really aggressive to optimize performance, but doesn't optimize comfort. Now we need to sit, step back and go, okay, is the reason it's not comfy for you now because of the bike or because of the body? And often it is, you know, they're, they're relatively stiff and immobile through their sort of thoracic spine, that sort of ribcage area. Um, maybe we've got some neck issues. Maybe we've got some lower back issues. Might be that we're just not, you know, carrying a bit of weight. We're not fit enough yet to be in those positions for long periods of time. So you often see those sort of mistakes where, um, they'll just jump onto that aggressive position 
And they'll come in again going, you know, well, I'm only doing 10 miles twice a week. Yeah, but what you've done is you've gone from a really upright, comfy position to this really aggressive sort of aerodynamic position. Wintertime will be a classic one. Now, you'll see people sitting on these upright bikes, the turbos or the spin bikes in their garages and in the gym, and they'll build big hours, big mileage, crew through the winter. They'll have a good base training. The first hint of spring sunshine, the TT bike comes out and whoosh, off they go. <laughs> but I'm going to do three hours on this today because I'm cycling for three hours normally. Well, actually, you're not anywhere, you know, if I could drive my um, Vauxhall for three hours quite comfortably. I couldn't drive a Formula One car for three hours quite comfortably. But what it would be a sensible plan, maybe six weeks before spring would be, okay, the last 20 minutes of my bike ride, I'm going to actually put my TT bike on the turbo trainer. Or I'm going to tuck down in those positions. I'm going to start building up some, some tolerance to that. But it's often mistakes. Swimmers. Classic one in the winter when they're trying to work on technique. They put things like those hand paddles on. And if you've seen those, hmm. all of a sudden then these, this lever length and this force generation has been magnified multiple times. Well, I'm still doing the same sets I do in the pool. Now they're having to drag this huge force through and now we start getting some shoulder problems. So, so it's all those simple stuff. It, you know, I really do think that working with endurance athletes is, is relatively simple. If we just break down what they've done to get the problems, most mistakes are too keen, too eager, a little bit naive, you know, other than maybe that rower I mentioned. I'm yet, I've treated thousands of endurance athletes. I have never met anyone who ever set out to injure themselves or ever set out to make mistakes that could sacrifice their season. People mm. make genuine mistakes because they think it's the right thing to do. They listen to other people's advice who tell them it's the right things to do or the classic. Well, the best runner in the club does this, so that's what I should be doing. But he's the best runner in the club for a host of reasons that makes him different to you. So the copying those other people and those role models works to a point, if you think of the, the, the bigger picture. My brother growing up was, um, was a bit of a musclehead, and he used to come home with sort of um, uh, Flex or Muscle and Fitness magazine and try to do Arnie's bicep session. And bless him, you know, the probability was A, it wasn't Arnie's bicep session, or B, it's Arnie's bicep session for a reason, and you're not Arnie. So, so yeah. modify it and adapt it and build up to it. But, um, but yeah, it's just the common common mistakes, common errors that people do with the best of intentions are, are nearly always, in each discipline of endurance sports, the reason why people end up picking up problems. And I've been that guy with the swimming paddles, and, you know, I used to think that swimming paddles were basically just a bit of a strength training thing. So you'd kind of, yeah, it's like swimming with weights effectively. So I'd tie them down to my hand, you know, really tight. And I'd, you know, swim some 400 splits really, really quick. You know, I thought this is brilliant. That's not until I had, you know, a couple of lessons. The guy was like, no, no, it's just so they're mainly you. So you can get the feel of the water and learn how to control, you know, because if you're swimming with poor technique, the paddles will fall off your hand if, if you've got them tied side correctly and i could kind of change my whole perception of doing it and uh, yeah. i reduced my shoulder plane which yeah, is always and, good and yeah. <laughs> probably the most unpopular line that i ever use with with endurance athletes when they're sitting in a room in front of me is that endurance athletes are lazy and they're all this shocked look what do you mean i train 20 hours a week what are you talking about but actually we are always looking for the easy way out the, the cheat the, the path of least resistance so you'll see so many endurance athletes particularly those triathletes for example who, who aren't the strongest of swimmers they don't come from the swimming background if i stick a pool boy between my legs if i start using hand paddles if i stick the old front snorkel in i can start accruing a big set lots of meters lots of lengths without really working much harder with my swim or oh, stick my fins on and i'll do 10 lengths kicking well that's not 10 lengths kicking that's 10 lengths being pushed along mm. you know do two lengths with fists women and see what that does to your technique um so we are a nightmare as as a as a population for trying to find easy ways through stuff, um, and we have a real bad belief of it's all about miles of volume. You know, I've started. I, I write. I coach as well, so I write programs for people, and I've just found myself more and more in the last few years writing programs based off time rather than distances and speeds and stuff because there's so many variables for every session. There's so many stresses. You know. We probably all mentioned that analogy of the, the cup of stress that's emptied, not just through the physical stuff, but the, the work, the family, the life, everything else that's going on 
you know, I ran today and I did the same run that I did on Sunday. I'm someone who loves running in the rain. It was, it was rainy and cold on, on Sunday. It was the weekend. I'd spent time with the family in the morning. I was feeling good. And I went for a nice run and listened to podcasts. Same run today, which was squeezed into lunchtime. It was a bit warmer. Didn't really feel great. It just felt so much harder. Now, if I had tried to set splits and distances in the same way I would have Sunday, there was nowhere to met them. And I'd have got really disheartened and down about it. So I just ran to time hmm. and ended up making the most of, of what it was. So, um, so when it comes to some of those errors, if people just trained for time, I'm going to swim for an hour, I'm going to bike for an hour or whatever that, that time is for that person at that point in the season. So it, it takes a lot of pressure off us and often avoids many of those errors. So true. You mentioned coaching there and something which you do quite a lot of. Um, for, for, for the, you know, should we say average Joe, you know, people, is, is a coach something you'd recommend? Um, is that, or is it more for the, you know, often you think coaches and you think advanced athletes, uh, the kind of high levels, or, you know, would everyone benefit from having a coach kind of do their programming and look after their hours and volume and meters? <laughs> yeah, honest answer, depends on the coach. Some shocking coaches out there. I'm sure. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a little anecdote. I remember being, uh, I was teaching a, a group of cyclists probably three, five years ago and mentioning about bespoke training programs and just how bespoke is your training plan. So things like, and, and again, I'm not telling everyone the same, but there's some fantastic coaches out there online, in person, some fantastic books out there. But likewise, there's the ones that aren't really bespoke. So um, these were um, quite, not elite, but sub-elite sort of mountain bike racers. So I'd, um, I was saying, you know, look, some coaches, they're really fantastic, some not so. So this guy just went, oh, look, I, I've got a coach. If you, I, I don't mind if you wanted to bring my program up. I can log into Training Peaks and you can see his program. So this guy, brilliant, thanks for that. So we put his program up and we were just genuinely going to chat about how his program was planned. Two minutes later, this geezer who was who didn't know this guy from Adam went, hang on, that's my program. <laughs> and then almost in an I'm Spartacus way, there was a third guy who went, that's my program. Turns out they all had the same online coach. These guys had a 20-year age spread between them. They were all at different points in their season and they were all training for different events. And he had just given a copy and paste. Now, it wasn't a bad program. It just wasn't bespoke. So... Um, uh, you're right. You're completely right, Rob. People do think coaches are, are for the realm of the elite and they're not. A lot of the time, I'm a big fan if someone um, wants a coach to just outsource motivation. I, I work with plenty of athletes to say to me, I won't do this session unless you are holding me accountable for it. Or I've, you know, myself sometimes, I generally self-coach my when I'm doing events, but I can be honest enough of knowing when I'm writing programs because I want to do them, not because it's the right program for myself. So there's many a time I'll ring a friend of mine who's another coach and just say, right, listen, coach me for this event because it just gives me something different to think about instead of writing the stuff that I'd write for myself. So um, I think how much coaching is probably more the question. Um, is it worth having some contact with a coach? Now, what I mean by that is you may join a running club and they have a club coach who does a generic overview of people and can give you some little tips about certain stuff. That's probably more than enough for many beginners. It can be um, paralysis by analysis. Sometimes if you're new to something, a lot of the time it's just, if you're new to a sport, just do it, just do it and learn off the other people that you're doing it with. Um, but if you feel that there's a reason you're not progressing or you want to progress more, or just that it's time for a change, then absolutely think, have a look around, do your due diligence, see what's out there coaching-wise. I don't think you need to be spending lots of money every month like some of these things are. You know, and again, you could if you see a coach that you like and you see that the package they tend to offer is, you know, a fixed rate monthly with, with all this sort of shenanigans that goes along with it, reach out to them and say, look, I'd really like to work with you, but I don't think I need that level of input yet. Is there anything else you offer and, and see where you, where you come from? What I think um, gives most people peace of mind is the ones who, the people I see more frustrated, the, the most frustrated aspect of the sport, generally to, when it comes to coaching, is the people who've never had a coach and aren't sure if they should have a coach. 
what a lot of people do is they'll try a few coaches and at some point in the future, they may often come to the decision of, okay, I get that now. I get what coaching could offer me. Now I'm okay self-coaching. I'll, I'll use what I've learned and now I'll self-coach. Um, or, or they stick with the coach because they're like, right, this is working for me. I'm happy with it. Mm. But there are some brilliant, brilliant athletes who self-coach and aren't coaches. Um, and there's also people who pay a lot of money to, to relatively reputable coaches and don't get anywhere. So um, it's a long way of saying it depends. <laughs> no, I, I mean, I, I, I had, a, as, a, as, as an aside, as a caveat, I had a, a, a patient come to see me once who wanted to do an Ironman for the first time. And he had never cycled over, I think, 30K type thing. And he'd, he'd literally bought his first road bike. Um, he had, he'd cycling to work on a hybrid. That's all he, and, he, and he signed up with this Ironman training program. He got this personalized package. First weekend was to kind of check his limits, you know, kind of, I've forgotten what they called it, but like a, see where he was at. And it was cycle 100K as fast as you can. Yeah. And he was like, um, so I'm not sure if I should be doing this or not because I've, I've you know, it's going to take me 12 hours. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, maybe speak to the coach about that. But uh, yeah. 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 And again, so, you know, some of it, like generally, um, so let's use Ironman as an example. There are, there's three or four books or online things you can download that are really well known, particularly with first time Ironmaners. Um, for Don't think. Um, in a-, a good program to use for that. There's one called the Think Method and stuff. And they're not bad, but what they're not is bespoke. And I always say to a lot of people, look, common sense wins out here more than anything else. So download the program by all means. And then think about your life and your commitments and if it fits to that program. So if you've got this program that says, I want you to do long rides on a Saturday morning, but you coach your son's football team or your daughter's rugby team, mm-hmm. then you just need to shift where that long ride goes. Now, if that has a knock on or conse- knock on consequence or effect to something else in the program, Play around with it. Use it as nothing more than a template. Because I think my advice to most most um, endurance athletes, unless you're, you know, the Brownlee brothers, for example, would be the fact that if you get about 80% of your program done, you're probably going to be fine. So you've just got to work out what's the key three or four sessions each week that you can't afford to miss. If you miss the rest, you miss them. Don't play catch up. Don't chase them. Just leave them go. Move on to the next week. And more often than not, they'll, they'll do well. One of the other problems that I see most of the time is, is people start overcooked rather than undercooked. And I've always said to people that I work with, whether it's a patient or an athlete, um, I'd rather you be on the start line 10% undercooked than 1% overcooked. You'll do better. You'll, you'll have more reserve, more stability, and you, you know, more sustainability, and, and you'll, you'll probably achieve what you want to achieve. Perfect. I, I love that. That's so true. So I think to move on to kind of towards the end, we'll, I think let's talk about um, exercises. Uh, and, you know, we focus a lot on triathlon, which is brilliant. And that's what we've, uh, you know, what we wanted to do. A lot of triathletes only do triathlon. And, you know, it's, it's kind of a, an old adage in, in, in our business that they come in and they've, what do you do off the bike, off the swim and off the cycle? Yeah, you know, off the run, nothing. What do you find are kind of the key, whether it's strength, whether it's resistance, whether it's endurance type exercises, do you find yourself giving out again and again and again for, for the, you know, the average Joe triathlete? Yeah, this, this is my biggest conversation each week. This is, this is, you know, I wouldn't call it the bane of my life, but this is the biggest barrier to break down. So um, cardio is king. Cardio will always be king. And anyone who tries to dethrone it is, is, is a fool. They're not going to get anywhere with that. Um, but the secret is the timing and the structure of someone's year, basically. So I'm a big fan of strength training. Uh, when we go back to that analogy about making the system more robust, making the car more able to go further or faster, that's how I try to, to sell it to my athletes. Look, you know, we can make you a better athlete by doing, because they're the usual, the, the way in normally is when they say the line, I can't squeeze any more training in. That's when you know I've got you now. Because now I can win you over by just going, look, less is more here. You don't need to do more training, but you can use your time better. So um, the mistakes, so I think strength training is the answer. Um, As far as what they do and where, it's just ideally a global program for a bit of everything. I'm a big fan of those, you know, push, pull, press movements. 
Um, it, gun to my head, what am I looking at doing with them? Deadlifts, squats, lunge work. I like some single leg work so that they can really spend that time on single leg. Um, I like to say I invented this thing called the multi-hip complex. I haven't. I've just done <laughs> a few exercises and given them a fancy name. But um, effectively, that sort of single leg with a resistance band or a cable machine works well. And you're just taking your leg back out to the side and forward. So that flexion, extension, abduction type pattern. And it's working that the, the, the standing leg is having a lot of pelvic stability and strength work while the other leg is, is working those muscles as well. And that's a nice little complex to go. We mentioned Achilles being one of the big problems. I'm a big fan of loading up the calf raise. And again, for those, those ones listening that aren't medical, then we got two big muscles in the calf. One needs to be worked with the straight leg and one needs to be worked with the bent leg. Not enough people work with a bent leg. Um, and, and generally, I'm a fan of getting them to go heavy. Um, body weight is better than nothing. Someone tells me they're happy to go in the living room and do some strength work and body weight. That's better than not doing it. Um, but I'd like to progress them. And again, you can progress them in a house with, with some home gym stuff or just a rucksack and some sandbags and things like that. But the secret is timing. So what you normally find is that when they start a program, these endurance athletes, although they train all year round, normally it's I start a program for something. We've just seen um, London Marathon virtually this weekend. Yeah. So pretty yeah. much guaranteed. I need a 24 weeks ago. Most of those people would have put their new shoes on and, and set out on week one of their program. But what they also try to do and make the mistake of is start some strength training that same week. And we've probably got a sweet spot of a couple of weeks that I can progress both quite happily. It's not really taxing me. It's fine. But then both become quite demanding and I can't do both. Cardio is king. So let's drop the resistance work. So it's the message of, you know, now is the perfect time. We're going into that winter phase where the cardio training is probably less important to most people right now. They're just picking over. Mm. Now is the time. Let's spend eight to 12 weeks working really hard on on home or gym-based strength work, get your system better so that when we then come back in the new year and ramp the, the cardio up, then your body's ready to take it. Um, Rich Blair Grove did some great work a couple of years ago, got really nice systematic review showing that we can get some really good results from twice weekly and then in season, once weekly to maintain it as long as we keep that intensity up. Um, I, I don't ever say to... Five sets of five is where I like to go. So that's five repetitions, five times. It's not an absolute aim though. It just is when I'm explaining to an athlete or a patient, I want you to be heading this way. We may never get past four sets of eight. We may never get past four sets of 10, but it just tells them that's where we want to go with this. Works really well. If there's, if there's therapists, coaches, personal trainers listening, then simple is the best thing. Endurance athletes want simplicity, overcomplicating this stuff. Give them far less exercises than you probably think you should give them, but really manipulate that same exercise more and more and more to make it more testing. Um, I used to run little circuit classes for endurance athletes. So, you know, I know you hate doing this, so let's get six of you in. We'll have a laugh. We'll do a little circuit. Is it optimal strength training? Probably not, but actually it's better than nothing. And some of you may well then go off and do it more consistently yourself so it's the timing is is what works with strength stuff um in the off season i'm a big fan of telling them to go and do other stuff go and have fun go and you know go and do other stuff um there's a guy i know um who i worked with before who met his wife in a badminton club and 10 years later decided he wanted to get into triathlon so that had a real social uh, sort of emotional, psychological impact on the marriage, to be honest. Because suddenly now, she wasn't going twice a week with him to play as badminton. Mm. So um, the deal they made every year was, as soon as his last race was finished, about mid-September time, September to Christmas, he was, boom, badminton. Because that was her getting him back for that period of time. But he actually enjoyed it, and he said it was fun. And, and he always used to say, if I didn't do that, I know I'd be still putting the big miles in. I'd still be creeping up the bike mileage and, and it's in the swimming pool and stuff. So have fun when you're not training for an event. Have, have a deload, even if it's still doing active stuff. Get strong. 
um, using some of those stuff. And I think the message I'm, I'm a big fan of pushing out is I see too many of these patients that I see as the second or third opinion stuff where they had an Achilles problem three years ago, had a really good rehab plan, did really well, but they're still doing the rehab plan now. Mm. You know, re- rehab is rehab. It's to get you back to, to a level that we need you to. Very rarely do you ever need to consistently keep doing them. You may need to do some of them in some form for a period of time or pick them up if you start to feel niggled in the eyes. But um, you know, rehab is short term for most people. And then it's just going back to the stuff you want to do. Mm. I think there's often the the initial um, either naivety or confusion over strength and size as well. Um, you know, you're not sending, uh, we're not looking for Arnold Schwarzenegger lumbering around the course. Um, if it was that easy to put on size, uh, well, I spent a half my adult life trying to <laughs> trying to walk sideways through, his door, uh, through doors and it hasn't worked. Um, it, it's very tough to put on muscular size, but strength and fit for purpose muscles, tendons and ligaments are what's created by these type of programs. So you mentioned, you know, twice a week there, then once a week to maintain. It's not a, a size weight game. O- often when we suggest, okay, well, let's build in some squats or some more uh, resistance-based exercises, we get met with, I don't want to carry that round. I don't want to, you know, uh, carry that extra weight with me. I think, oh, well, I would like to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, so yeah, it, it's not a case of putting on mass, putting on size. It, it's a case of creating stability, robustness, and a, a different load through those tissues. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. You show me a bodybuilder. So forget the nutrition, maybe the anabolic stuff that, that obviously helps create that muscle mass, which which the endurance athletes not doing. But you show me a, a bodybuilder who does six to 20 hours of cardio a week. Mm. And the endurance athlete seems to forget that sometimes. Oh, I'll get big. Well, how are you going to get big? You're doing all this training. So um, there's no, you know, you're not even eating in the, in the right sort of macronutrients that we need you to, to be putting on that stuff. So, but, you know, good luck. You, you know, I'll be super impressed if you do put some size on. Yeah. But that message, you're absolutely right. And sometimes then that's what I, when I'm giving that explanation of why this strength program, we'll call it, is important. The narrative I support it with is more about compressive forces, tensile forces, what it's doing to the tendons and that sort of elasticity and stiffness and force transmission. Obviously, I I use far simpler layman's terms, analogies for these guys of, you know, you've you've got stuff that needs to act like a spring that spring needs to be able to absorb well, but then recoil really fast. This might look like we're making your calves stronger, but effectively that's the byproduct. The main aim is to get those Achilles able to, to produce more force. And, and there's there's two ways with it. With, with the selling point for someone who's injured, and again, the evidence isn't great, but it we've extrapolated way more than we should from the available evidence that we will prevent or reduce injuries. Um but it seems like common sense to do it and maybe the evidence will support it in future. Mm. But what we do know, and this is often the big sell, we've got a load of evidence for about 30 years showing that a stronger endurance athlete will perform better. So if you are a weekend warrior, recreational endurance athlete, you have other commitments, you are only limited to a certain amount of hours of training, then the bang for your buck that some strength work could do to help your performance far outweighs 90% of the gadgets, gizmos, and silly stuff that you could buy to try and make you faster. Um, you know, the, um, the vapor fly is, is obviously, and the alpha fly are the big, big gizmos right now. It's 4% or plus, you know, improvement. That Blagrove work that I was talking about found an 8% improvement in running economy. That's a damn sight cheaper than 250 quid for a pair of shoes. Yeah. So again, you know, now if you imagine you've done the strength work and then you went to buy the shoes. But most people are looking for the disc wheel or the fancy shoes or something else. So um, strength work is a big thing for me. It's not sexy and it's a hard sell sometimes, particularly when you're battling against the marketing and the sort of media that's out there. But um, you only need to get them hooked for a little bit before they tend to generally start seeing the benefits. And a bit in the same contents that we, we, context that we mentioned, coaches, my attitude's very much, do you know what? If we try some strength work, you're really consistent with it and you don't feel it's helping you, cool, we tried it, we've given it a go. I've given you that exposure to it. Trust you now as a grown-up to make the decision whether you think it's something you want to carry on doing or not. 
and and then fine we've had that that conversation with it brilliant that's that's fantastic that's fantastic um well mike that that's kind of like one of my my favorite you know myths or uh um uh, something to bust that actually yeah that that's not gonna have you walking around lumbering with extra pounds of muscle mass um as a last uh, quick fire round, are there any other uh, myths or or um, uh, common misconceptions that you like to bust or that you hear from people that you're you're constantly having to um, uh, to change their minds on? You can you can tell the world now on this podcast. Oh Lord, here we go. Soapbox time. <laughs> so there's there's three that I'll, I'll hit. Two mm. two I'm well known for mourning about. One's the stretching myth. Um, ah. I'm a big fan of you know we've we've got. You think of that first um, running boom of the 70s, everybody did these static stretches and and I've, I've toned down my approach on this a little bit. We don't have great evidence to suggest static stretching as a warm-up or a cool-down is going to have any great benefit. Um, it's probably not going to be too detrimental. There are stuff saying that it could be detrimental, which we like to play if we're trying to argue the case. But generally, I'm at a point now, look, if you're there's more important things to do, Get, get your other stuff right first, you know, get your hydration, your nutrition, your training, your rest, recovery, and sleep right. If you still want to stretch, stretch, but don't think you can have problems or won't perform as well as you can if you're not stretching as, as a gimme. Um, and unfortunately, there's the people we need to change the message on that a lot is therapists still. Therapists are big, still pushing that message for pro-stretching. Um, shoes, running shoes. Um, this whole myth of, for, rather than the shoe, the foot posture myth. So pronation is bad and there are good shoes you should wear and bad shoes you shouldn't wear and those are the only things you have. Same as we talk about with, with back posture, there are only different postures and some people will get on with some shoes and some won't. You know, buy some shoes that are comfortable, rotate them around, wear different types of shoes and if again, if you put all those other bigger things in place first, then shoes are probably less less of a factor than you think. That gait assessment of going to a shop and someone telling you that you you run a certain way and you need a certain type of shoe is just the big myth from the from the sales side of the industry that we need to, to bust. Um, and then thirdly, it's just rest. You know, there is a real mantra that rest is rust, mm-hmm. and that everybody else is training more and training harder. And if you you want to get better you have to do more and and you really don't of course you need a certain amount of volume and of course depending on the event some of these ultra marathons and these ultra tries that you see these days of course for some of those then you will need more volume for certain ones but um you can only benefit from the training you're recovering from and in particular with rest sleep seems to be so important it's the most powerful thing. As far as um, you know, I'm a bit of a, of a geek following the evidence on, on this stuff and anything to do with the endurance world. And the thing that just seems to be in our faces more than ever with just a bigger, stronger base backing it up right now is the power of sleep. Um, so again, you'll see these people who will be, I've got 250-pound vapor flies. I've had a bike fit. I'm doing this coaching program off the internet. I'm doing. I'm eating these gels and I'm doing all this. But they sleep for like four hours a night. Mm. And they wonder why they're not performing. Now, everybody obviously sleeps different. I'm, I'm a lighter sleeper. I sleep off about six hours most nights. So this magical eight hours isn't probably achievable for many. But a bit more sleep rather than a bit less sleep is, is a really powerful tool. Um, you know, recovery in my mind is the key to unlocking performance. I've learned that the hard way as I get older. I'm in my mid forties now, and my performance days were peaked in the twenty in my twenties. And like most of us middle aged athletes, I just wish I knew now. I wish I knew then. Sorry, what I know now, but I had the body then now that could. <laughs> so um, you know, don't fear rest. Rest is a good thing. Often, what you'll find, and this is quite a, something I've learned more recently in the last few years, when you analyse the training programs of endurance athletes that hate rest, fearful of rest, and are poor at applying rest. And when I say rest, I mean recovery as a, as a big picture, not just sitting watching telly. Um, then actually, it's the training program isn't hard enough for them. So they're genuinely not feeling like they need to recover or rest because they probably don't. 
So you can improve recovery by making sure the program's appropriate for them. So again, most of them make, um, and I go, yeah, I guess let's squeeze it in as the fourth one. This isn't a fast buy around really, is it? I'm slowing this down for you. <laughs> we'll let you off. So the fourth one I would probably put in then is this sort of moderate training intensity rut. Everybody tends to train quite hard. So Stephen Siler was, is another famous uh, sports scientist coined this polarized training approach. So about 80% of your training is very easy and about 20% is very hard. There's not a lot in the middle. It's, it's what a huge proportion of, of the top guys and girls are doing these days. Whereas most of us, I've got an hour, so I want to be working quite hard. So if you think of three zones of training, one really hard, one really easy, and one just in the middle, I'm sweating. It's not full conversation. I'm out of breath, but I can talk a bit. We all sit in there way too long. Therefore, we're not doing the base training enough, and we're not doing the hard training enough. So have a little, if you're not someone who's comfortable with recovery, or your performance isn't kicking on as much as you think, have a little look about how your training program is as far as intensity. May need that you need to do much more or less intensity, a little bit higher when you do do higher, and just avoid the quite hard bit in the middle. Awesome. Thank you, Mike. That was, uh, that was brilliant. And that was uh, incredibly in-depth. And uh, thank you so much for uh, taking up some more, giving us some of your valuable time on a, uh, what day is it today? Wednesday night? Tuesday night? Tuesday night in, uh, in, in, Tuesday night in, uh, in October. I've lost what day it is. So Mike, where can people find out more about you? I know you've done a, you're very big on social media. You've got a lot of followers there, YouTube channel, where direct people to where they can find out more about you. Yeah, well, thanks for having me on. The list of people that you guys have had on is, is super impressive and it's, a, it's an honour to be invited. Um, my bastion has always been my Facebook page, The Endurance Physio. That's where I tend to post multiple times every day, videos and slides and advice about stuff. It's 90% patient-facing, athlete-facing, a little bit thrown in for therapists. If you're a therapist who wants to know more the geeky side of me, jump over to Twitter at The Endurance PT. And then Insta, which I've spent a bit more time on lately, is the endurance physio with an underscore between each one. That tends to be a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's the main places to find me. Fantastic. And the one question that all the triathletes will be asking is, you've done 17 Ironmans. What's your best time? PB was 9.40. Wow. That's pretty which, impressive. Which back, back in the day was okay. That was done early 2000s, um, which at the time was good. Now, I mean, literally... That's there's ten of them in every race without people batting an eyelid now. <laughs> yeah. Um that, that's the and I think that's the one of the things, particularly in the triathlon world, that's just phenomenal to see is it was a second sport for many people when it first came out. And now you're seeing these youngsters getting in who were just bringing those barriers down and pushing the standards up year on year on year. Um, you know, if you'd said to me there'd be seven hour-ish. Ironman times, you know, phenomenal, phenomenal. Fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much for, for listening, all those who, 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 who are listening. Again, if you want to check us out, you can have a look at us on all the social medias at the Back Pain Podcast or at the Back Pain Pod. If you'd like to join our associated Facebook group, the Back Pain and Sciatica Support Group, there's about 2,500 people in there, all full of hints, tips, videos, blog posts, everything. So thank you ever so much for listening. If you like what we do, give us a review. Give us a nice, a nice five-star review on Amazon. It really helps us out and helps keeps this keeps this train going. So thank you and good night. Good night, everyone. Thank you, guys. Oh, you guys are slick. You guys are slick with this. <laughs>